0: Good afternoon, everybody. So, I'm really honored uh, to be part of this program. Um, I'm teaching together with two people that whom I admire a great deal, and I've learned a lot from both of them as friends and as teachers. Uh, I never met Ritka, but through reading about, reading her writings, I really feel in some important ways that I have met her. They're amazingly personal, powerful, um, and full of meaning. And I wanted to read just the conclusion of uh, a column called Me and My Cagrusa, which is in the volume that Barry mentioned. And it goes as follows. About her learning together with Judy and reflecting on it. She says, I like to think that when my cabrusa and I pour over the text my grandparents held so dear, I am in some way connecting with them in substance, if not in style. I like to think that I am drawing from the same well, the well that gave them their strength and our religion its endurance. Now that I have children, I am hoping they go to that same well, too. We are all uttering the same words, each in our own voice. I want to go back for a moment to uh, something that Devorah said, which is the idea of internalizing Torah Shaval Peh and Mishnah in particular. Um, I like to think of Mishnah as my friend. I. I Learn or try to learn a little bit of Mishnah every day. Sometimes I find it incredibly boring, quite frankly. But something that helps me is uh, a Sugya and Brachot and Chapon of The Sugya goes as follows Sugya says that the Umot Ha'alam, the nations of the world, say to God, You know, you're not consistent because you are described as someone asher lo you never show favorites and yet, in the B'rkat Kohanim Kohanim say yisah Hashem may God show you favor so what's the deal? you show favor or not but apparently you're showing favor to K'la Yisrael as opposed to the other nations so the K'adosh Baruch Hu says ma'a, so what can I do? because I told B'nei Yisrael the halta of the Savata You should bench when you are satisfied. If you have a satisfying meal, then that's the time for your katamazon. As someone I know sometimes says, "That was a savata meal." And that, yeah. and that I could bench go right. <laughs> um, but what did they do? They said we're going to save your kadamazon even if we eat only a k'zayit, according to one opinion volume of an olive, or the volume of a beitza, the volume of an egg. So I understand that in two ways. One I guess I'm inspired by uh, what I heard from and read of, uh, what I heard from the rabbi Salvechik and from his writings, the importance of making order in the world. That part of the power of Torah is making order out of chaos. Everything can be defined. Everything can be given a meaning and a place. Um, And that is part of the dignity that we have as human beings. The second is my own thought, which is, I'll use the following analogy, you know, your spouse says, I'd love some ice cream, could you go out and get some ice cream? So one possibility is, you go out and get some ice cream. The other is to say, well, what flavor do you want? How many scoops? Do you want sprinkles or not? Chocolate sauce? What if they don't have that flavor? What flavor would you like instead? That's how I think of the mission of Hazel. That when they read Torah, they want to know exactly what it is that God wants of them, of us. And they ponder this question. And define each mitzvah as fully as possible. So I like to think, therefore, of what we do, what the Mishnah does, and what we do in studying Torah, as an act of love, an act of love for the Torah The topic that I want to speak about tonight, today, is something that's very dear to me. Uh, you know, Rabbi Akiva said, "V'hatalrecha tamocha zeklal gadol that loving our neighbor as ourselves, this is an important principle in the Torah. And I don't know about anyone else, but I find that there are certain things that I learned earlier on that I thought were wonderful ideas. But I didn't really internalize them. I really didn't understand what they meant in terms of how I was supposed to live my own life. And as I've gotten older, I've taken that more and more seriously, that really the basis of all religious life is being able to empathize with others and to put ourselves in the place of others. Ultimately, that is what it means to be a religious person. And the connection to what I want to teach is that I've become more and more interested in the mitzvot of (laughs) Bein Adam l'cha And particularly those parts of Torah and Halakha that deal with the problem simply of how do we live together in this world? How do we live in the same world together when we have different interests, when we have different desires, when we have different priorities? And what I'm going to teach comes from the second paragraph of Batra, which is what the Rambam describes as Hilkot Shreny the laws concerning neighbors. What happens when we are neighbors, when we live together in the same space? And inevitably, the actions that I take have have an impact on you, sometimes negative. So how do we balance the fact that you have certain rights as a homeowner, as someone who owns property and simply as a human being, with the fact that I do too? And what you can do can have a negative effect on me and vice versa. This is really the problem of this parent. And before we look at the halakhic aspects of this chapter, I'd like us to start. if you look at the source sheets, I'd like to do in a sense the opposite of what the Mishnah often does and start with Divrei Adada and then we will go to Divrei Halakha. So there is a story on page one, which starts with a halakha and then goes to a story. Tanu Rabbanan, Logi Sakail Adam Mirishuto Lirishut Harabin. A person has stones in his field, and he wants to farm that piece of land, and he can't do so because there are stones in the field, should not take those stones and throw them into the public domain. And now the Gemara tells the following story. There was a person who did exactly what that rita told us not to do. He wanted to use his land. There were rocks, there were stones on the property. So it was very convenient for him to throw them into the public domain. And one pious individual found him doing this. Amarlo lo you're really an empty person, empty of wisdom, perhaps empty of piety. Why are you removing something from that which is not yours to a place which is yours? Of course, it's one of these rabbinic Zen cones, right? You know, it's counterintuitive and it's meant to be counterintuitive, but of course, the idea is here is to create a paradigm shift. So, we so the owner of the land laughed at him. What you're saying makes no sense. After some time, the owner of the land had to sell his land. And he was walking in the public domain. And what was he tripping over? The very stones that he himself had thrown into the public domain. Amar, he said to himself, Yache amar li oto chasid. That chasid was right. He, what he said was well spoken. Ma atam sake, shelcha shelcha. Why indeed are you removing stones from a place that is not yours to a place that is yours? And what I put below is sort of the paradigms that each of them had. The Baal HaSadeh and the chasid. So for the Baal HaSadeh, the only owner of the field, what is important is, how absolute is my ownership? So in the private domain, my ownership is absolute, or at least that's how the owner of the land regarded it. My ownership of the private domain is less absolute. I have less of an interest in the the public domain, rather. So therefore, if it's a question of taking care of the private domain, my own land, or worrying about the public domain, which is much less mine, so my private interest, my own land, trumps my interest in the public domain. But what the chassib tells him, and I'm going to say it actually slightly differently from what I've written here, what the Hasid tells him is that actually you have more of an interest in the public domain than you have in the private domain, or at least you should. Because we own things for we don't know how long. Ownership is transitory. And in fact, I would go farther even though I don't think this is necessarily in the Gemara, but I think it's important to say that an idea that has been developed in Jewish sources throughout history is that ownership is stewardship that ownership means that we have been given something as a gift for a certain period of time and we are expected to use it responsibly but the Rishud HaRabim is a place that belongs to everyone for which everyone has responsibility including this person and that is what this person did not understand. And I want to relate this for a moment to something that is very important to me and that is the environmental issues that face us today. Um, There have been various attempts to elicit the interest and the concern of the Jewish community about this issue, most of them uh, from my observation not very successful. I think one of the reasons that we haven't succeeded, and one of the reasons we haven't succeeded is it's very uncomfortable to look at this and its implications. But one of the reasons that we haven't succeeded is that for the most part we've used this paradigm of the beauty of nature and the importance of nature and looking at God's creation. And I don't think that speaks to the urbanized Jewish community. But this should speak to us, which is that we need to understand that when we are throwing pollution out into the air we are throwing it out to the Rishut Shelana that is ours that air is the air that we breathe too, that water is the water that we drink too and apropos of this chapter in this world in the global village in which we live we are all Shchenim we are all neighbors so if the Talk about nature doesn't inspire us. I think the recognition that we, A, are all neighbors, and B, that when we bring, bring you know pollution degradation into the world, we're really bringing it into our own reshut, our own domain, should make us think. Before I begin with a specific topic, I want to say something which doesn't really contradict what Deborah said, but I guess compliments it. Which is, one of the things that fascinates me about Mishnah is part of what fascinates me in general, which is how frustrating our effort to communicate with each other is. How difficult it is, really, to have the sense that we understand each other. And again, the, the challenge of the Haftal Reach is related to this. How much of an effort do we really make to put ourselves in somebody else's position and really to understand what they're saying. My guess is, everyone here has experienced a situation where you tell somebody something and they say, yeah, I know what you're saying. And inside you're saying, no, you don't. Not really. I I, I know you want to, but you don't. You can't possibly really know what I'm saying. And part of the challenge of Mishnah is, And here my understanding is, again I think this complements what Boa said, that since Mishnah is is in the context of an oral culture, when you have an oral culture and you want to transmit teachings, I think there is a certain tension between brevity and clarity. You want to create a formulation that can be easily transmitted and that leans us in the direction of brevity. Because the longer you go on, sometimes it becomes a case of diminishing returns. But if you favor brevity, clarity becomes more difficult. And part of what interests me in the study of Mishnah is how much is not clear already in the Gemara itself to those who are studying Mishnah and trying to understand. And what I want to look at with you now is one Mishnah in particular but that opens up questions of understanding actually a whole peric, the second chapter of Baba and this challenge of understanding precisely what it is that a line in the Mishnah means. So if you take a look at page two you have here one of the Mishnayot from this second chapter of Baba Batra. Now let me preface this by saying that this is one of the three cases, I'm sorry, four cases in this chapter where there is dispute. In other words, most of the Mishnayot in this chapter are Stam Mishnah. There is a halacha given and no one disagrees with it. But there are four cases in which there is disagreement. One is really a minor trivial disagreement in the last mishnah about what the shiur is, what the measurement is, um, the degree to which someone can cut away a tree that is um, uh, leaning over into his property, somebody else's tree that is leaning over into his property. The second one that I want to mention is actually very profound. You don't have it on your sheet, but the mishnah says as follows, that if you have a two-story dwelling, and I have an oven in that dwelling, I have to be careful that there is sufficient diff- distance between my oven and the ceiling, because even if I don't care about a fire in, in my home, right, my ceiling is my upstairs neighbor's floor. So if I put my oven too close to the ceiling, there's not enough distance between the oven and the ceiling, this would cause a fire, and this will cause damage to my upstairs neighbor's floor. And similarly, my upstairs neighbor has to, in effect, insulate the floor sufficiently so that his oven will not cause a fire, which will cause damage to me. Now, after this halakha is given, there is an interesting dispute between the anonymous Chachamim and Rabbi Shimon. Let's say that I distanced my oven the distance that the Mishnah requires me to distance and nonetheless, a fire results. So am I responsible for the damage caused by that fire? So the Chachamim say, absolutely. This is a requirement that you do your best to avoid damaging your neighbor's property, but if you do so, you have to pay for the damages. Rabbi Shimon says, no. That is the whole point of the shiurim. The whole point of the shiurim is to establish the point at which I can say, listen, I've done what is reasonable and now with damage results you can't hold me responsible." Now this latter view may sound very strange. I mean, what does that mean? Your oven caused damage to somebody else. So one of the Later, uh, one of Gronin, the Nesivos, offers a possible explanation for this, and he says, this chapter is not part of bhavakana, it's not part of the mesechet that discusses damages. Why? Because this is not really the same as the problem of damages. The problem here is... I'm using my property, I'm living in my property in the way that people normally do. But as a result of that, damage is happening for you. I am damaging your property. The problem is, if we limit each homeowner or each owner of property to the extent that we can be sure that no damage will happen to that neighbor and we always indemnify me for damage that I cause to you, it's going to make my use of my own property, just living in the normal way, very difficult. And that's why this category of nizikin, of damages, is regarded in a different way. So that's a very important principle and we'll come back to it. we very important today and we'll come back to it. Just for the record, the halakha like the chachamim. so even if I distance myself and require distance, if I cause damage I am responsible. Now the other two cases are cases where there's a debate between the Chachamin and Rabbi Yossi about particular kinds of damages and in general part of the challenge of this chapter as in so many chapters of Mishnah is not just as I said before understanding fully the intent of a particular Mishnah but because this chapter basically offers case law, as the Mishnah so often does, the question we ask ourselves is, does a general principle or set of principles emerge from this chapter that we can use to understand this, these specific halachot, the framework in which they fit, and the philosophy that they express? So let's look at Mishnah number two. <laughs> So the problem here is as follows. Mr. A wants to dig a pit in his property. Let's say a cistern. Because we're in Eretz Yisrael, one of the ways that you gather rain, or you gather water rather, is you dig a cistern so that when it does rain, you're able to gather that water in the cistern. And that will carry you through the times when there is no rain. And on the other hand, Mr. B wants to plant a tree in his property. Now the problem is a tree has roots, and it may happen that eventually the roots from the tree in property A will grow into property B, grow through the walls of the cistern, and in that way make the cistern unusable. So how do we resolve this? We have one person who wants to dig a bore, and one person who wants to plant a tree. So the mission says as follows, If I dug the pit first, and then you want to plant the tree, then you have to cut down your tree. But interestingly, and we'll come back to this too, you, Mr. Bohr, have to compensate me for the tree when I cut it down. kadam if the tree was there first and now my neighbor wants to dig a pit, basically he digs the pit at his own risk, okay, because my tree is there first. I mean, right, this is one of the, I guess, you know, instinctively logical principles that we can use in this case of conflict. Whoever gets whoever gets there first has rights that trump the rights of the neighbor. Rabbi Yossi Omer, but Rabbi Yossi says even though the pit was there first and now I want to plant a tree I, now it's not 100% clear whether he's saying you may plant the tree or if you did you don't have to cut it down but if you planted the tree you don't have to cut it down and from the, from the continuation of the Mishnah, it sounds like Rabbi Yossi is saying, you may even plant a tree in the first place. This person is living in his property. And this other person is planting a tree in his property. So now I want to ask you a question. What is the function of this last line? In other words, even if we didn't have this line, we would know the Halakha. Rabbi Yossi, contrary to the Chachamim, says that even if the pit was there first, I have the right in my property to plant a tree. Okay, now we know Rabbi Yossi's a pit. So what do you think is the function of this last line? That this one digs in his property and this one plants in her crops? Okay, so one way of understanding this is that this is a principle. and We've alluded to this principle before. That this is different from my throwing a rock at your house and breaking the window. That here, what I'm doing, we define what I'm doing as planting a tree. We don't define what you're doing as causing damage to your neighbor. That's not our primary definition of what's going on. And therefore, I'm allowed to do what I do in my, my property. You do what you do in your property. By the way, we discussed, even according to Raviosi, so what happens if my roots do grow into your pit? And some say, actually, you are obligated to pay. But the point here is that according to Raviosi, the law doesn't step in and say, because of the possibility that you might cause damage to your neighbor, we are going to limit your use of your own land. It may be that if what you do causes a problem, then you'll have to go to court but to limit your use of your land at the very beginning is really cutting into your sense your ownership You want to say something yeah, So uh, that, if that was just the only principle then why did they say this guy digging the wall on his property Because if you said this guy is planting a tree in his property we're going to have that as a principle. Because no, I think by mentioning both, that's really illustrating the principle. Each person does what he or she chooses to do in his property. That's the way it works. <coughs> However, there's another girsah, there's another version of this Mishnah. If you look under number four, you see the word shazet and then a bracket. So this reading of shazet is found in one of the manuscripts that is considered one of the quote-unquote best manuscripts of the Mishnah, both in terms of its orthography, also in terms of its uh, tradition of pronunciation, in terms of the text tradition, so that has Shezeh. But another one of the so-called best manuscripts of the Mishnah has Zeh, not Shezeh. Now, if we change it to Zeh, how can we understand this line? Although we may or may not regard it as redundant, it may simply be saying, and because I am saying, Rabbi Yossi is saying, that the other party can plant this tree, the result is that this one may do what he wants to do, and this one may do what he wants to do. Similar but not exactly the same is the Mishnah number five. What if two people in anger take vows and they say, you may not benefit from my property, and the other uh, neighbor says, you may not benefit from my property, and there is a courtyard between those two houses. So the first view in the Mishnah is therefore neither of them can go into the courtyard because they own it jointly. (laughs) Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov Omer Zeh Niknas W'tok Shaloh V'zeh That we have a way of regarding this jointly owned property this jointly owned courtyard as being half mine and half yours and so up to the middle of the courtyard you can enter on your side, and up to the middle of the courtyard, I can enter on my side. So we have a very similar expression here, Zenith Nasim Tokshelo, the Zenith Nasin Tokshelo. And here, it's clearly not a principle, it's just a statement of the law. Again, it's not exactly the same case, but it's a paradigm for understanding Zenith, uh, Zeth, Ofervitokshelo, and so on in Arbitra. Okay. It turns out. That there are other sources where the principles that underlie Rabbi Yossi's ruling, uh, other principles are suggested. Take a look at the Tosefta in number six. Right, Tosafot is a collection of Tanaitic teachings that supplements in a variety of ways the Mishnah. So, what does the Tosafot say? Right, you have to distance the tree from the pit 25 amot, measure of distance, and these other trees, uh, carrot trees and sycamore trees apparently have longer roots and that's why you have to distance them a greater distance. Rabiosi, Matir, Rabiosi allows you to plant a tree even after your neighbor has dug a pit. Why? Because after all, what is the use of a field in general? The use of a field in general is for the purposes of trees. Now this itself is ambiguous because one way of understanding what Rabbi is saying is simply a variation on what he said in the mission, which is what do you want from this guy? What do you expect him to do in his property? What people do in their property is plant trees. So, we're not going to restrict this person from the normal use of this field because of the possibility that damage may occur to the neighbor. However, there is another possibility, uh, and essentially that is that Rabiosi is deciding the issue based on social policy. That is, it's important for trees to be planted. It's important that there are trees. And therefore, we give precedence to the tree. And this, by the way, to go back to the first Mishnah, may explain the strange comment or the strange halacha in the first Mishnah, which is that even though, according to the first view, if you planted the tree after I dug the pit, you can make me cut down the tree, you still have to compensate me for the tree. Well, that's quite a disincentive to me asking you to cut down the tree. And the, the reason for this may be, because trees are important. So although in theory, I, the owner of the bar, can say that you have to cut down the tree, none, nonetheless, halachat creates a disincentive to do so. What if it's not a tree? What about planting the seeds for, for the oak? So that's talked about, but let's leave it. Okay? We have enough problems right now. And I don't want to bring it into one. Now, if you turn the page and you look at the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Talmud Yerushalmi says, "Rabi Yaakov Bar-Evi Vishayim Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, Talmud Rabbanim Mitnei sheyishuv ha'olam Beborot. So Rabi Yaakov bar Edi says in the name of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, the reason for the first view in our Mishnah, is because civilization needs cisterns. We need cisterns to collect water. This sounds like social policy. This sounds as though, this explanation seems to be, never mind what the relative rights are of who came first and who came last. The point is that we need to favor pits because pits are necessary in the world. Of course, Shimon Barva, Amar Bersheim Rabbi Och, non Kachmeshiv Rabbi Ossilachachamim, Kumad Idlechon Yeshuv Haalam Biborot, Ophana Idlechon Yeshuv Haalam Bilanot. Well, it may be that pits are important in the world, but so are trees. So I don't see any compelling basis um, on the basis of social policy for favoring Borot over trees. Oh, now I want to look at one more Mishnah in which Rabiosi has a view and then I want to raise a question with you. So let's look at um, number 10 which is the other Mishnah in the chapter where there is a disagreement between the anonymous Fatanim and Rabiosi. Ma'akekim <laughs> et ha-mishra min ha vetachreshim min Veta vetachardal min so we have three instances here. One is where you have a flax pool. pool where you soak flax, which you have to do in order to um, cause the hard shell to be softened so you can get to the fibers and you can create lid. So apparently the water from that flax pool will have a negative effect on my neighbor's Greens, the vegetables that he is growing, and therefore, if my neighbor is growing greens, I cannot build, I cannot dig, and create a flat spool too close to the border between our two properties, even though I'm doing it in my property. Veta kreshimin avitzalim. If my neighbor is planting onions, I can't plant leeks too close to the property line because this will cause damage to my neighbor's onions. Similarly, veta kardalmin in, I can't plant mustard plants too close to the border when my neighbor is raising bees because what will happen, the bees will come into my property and the honey that they will produce will include the sharpness of the mustard. And even though we have, uh, I'm sorry, the sharpness of the honey and uh, even though today we think that honey mustard is a good flavor, apparently back then that was not the case. So let me tell you something that's in Mishnah at the beginning of the chapter, and then I want you to tell me why Rabiosi might disagree in these two cases. Assuming that Rabiosi agrees in the first case that we have in this chapter, why might Rabiosi nonetheless, nonetheless disagree in these two chapters? So the, in the first Mishnah of the chapter, the Mishnah says, for example, if my neighbor has a pit, um, then I can't put uh, the refuse for making olive oil next to the wall of my neighbor because that might weaken the wall. Okay. So let's say that everybody agrees with that. How are these two cases different? If we all agree that you can't put something next to your neighbor's wall that eventually will weaken your neighbor's wall, how are these two cases different? The case of planting a tree that might eventually have a negative effect on my neighbor's pit, or having planting mustard where my neighbor has beets. Yes, please. Okay, right. So, one of the factors, as you said, is it's not clear that the roots will actually damage the pit. Depends how they grow. A second point that is made is that if you think about it in a particular way, the agent of damage is not here yet. The roots have to grow. The roots that eventually might cause damage are not here yet. Whereas in the case of the refuse that I'm leaving next to the wall, it's here. Would changing the case of a future growth yeah. be considered an effect. in only car and is not recognizable? Okay, that's an interesting idea but A, I don't think it's true and B, I think there is a, a simpler explanation and that is... In the case of the bees and the mustard, who's coming to whom? Right? If I plant, if I put something that will cause damage to your property next to your property, in a sense, what I'm putting there is coming to you. Is you know, let's say if it's the flat stool, the water is seeping into the wall and damaging it. But here, how is the damage occurring? The bees are coming into my property. Well, keep your bees out of my property. You won't have a problem. So my point is that we could imagine that Rabbiosi agrees in general that if I do something or play something close to to the borderline between my property and your property and that eventually will cause you damage, that at the very least I have to distance that potential source of damage from the borderline, from the property line. In these two cases however, Rabiosi sees these cases as exceptional and therefore he does not require the owner of, of the one who plants the mustard or the one who is planting the tree to distance the tree or the mustard from the property. That having been said, let's go back to Mishnah number one and that line what if we regard it as a larger principle as a sort of a libertarian principle in other words what Raviosi is saying is it may be that because of what I do in my property eventually damage will occur to you if and when it happens we'll go to court but halakha chooses not to or doesn't see itself as having the right to impose upon me to limit my use of the land because of something that might happen later on. After all, I am the owner of this property. I have the right to use it in the normal way. So it's possible to read Rabi as expressing a larger principle here. And frankly, it reminds me of the Mishnah, a famous Mishnah. Although, as one of my Gemara teachers once said, he said, it's a famous Ramba," And he stopped and he said, you know what it means that it's famous? It means I know it. <laughs> so, okay. But this one I think everyone, if not, almost everyone, if not everyone knows. So the Mishnah says there are four different attitudes that people can have towards property. Right? And one of them is Shali Shali, Vishalach Shalach. Right, so the first view in the mission is, this is Midat benoni. That's how most of us think. What's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. We're good. But the other view in the mission is, it's Midat Sodom. This is the way the people of Sodom fought. Very striking. I mean, what do you want? Right? What's, I mean, isn't that how we live in the world? What's mine is mine, what's yours is yours? So our scene has an essay about Midat Sodom. He says something very interesting. He says this view means the following, it doesn't mean that in the narrow technical sense somebody says, listen, this belongs to me, so if you come along and you take it, that's called theft and you have to give it back, you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, what is it, the priest in Les Miserables says, you know, go, in Hasidic stories like that, go, take it, hey okay, that's Midat that's hasidu. But Rav says, that the way this view is understanding the Mishnah is a person who has as his philosophy of life, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, which means two things. That this, and this goes back to the story of the Baal Hafsadei Nakasi, which is that what's mine is absolutely mine. And therefore, I have no obligation whatsoever to do anything for you. I mean, good luck. You have what you have. Do the best with it. It's not my no problem. So I don't want to accuse Raviossi of saying this, but what I do want to say is that if we understand Raviossi expressing a, a larger legal principle here, He is favoring this notion that if we have to choose between protecting my neighbor and thereby limiting my use of my land and saying, we start with the assumption that I have full use of my property and if and when a problem occurs we'll deal with it then, he favors the seventh view. Now, normally speaking, this would all be very nice and we could basically ignore Rabiosi because since he's a Dat Yachid since he is a minority view our expectation might be that his view will not be followed but guess what? that's not what happens so if you take a look on uh, where is it now uh... Yeah. Okay, at 13, right? So we have a citation from the Mishnah in Babu Batra. The halacha is in accordance with Rabbi Now I just have one question. What does he mean by that? Because there are a couple of things here. First of all, remember that although we have various traditions of Amoraim placed in a particular place in the Babli, that's not a guarantee that that was the original context in which they were saved. From the place, from the placement of this statement immediately after the mission in which Rabiosi says. But even though the pit comes first, the tree may be planted, or at the very least you can't have your neighbor cut it down. So a minimalist reading would be, in this particular case, the case of the tree, Balakha is like rabiosi. What about in the case of the mustard and the bees? I don't know. And if we assume, which is not necessarily the case, that rabiosi disagrees with regard to all of the other Mishnayot, then nonetheless, Halakha will not be like Rabbi Yossi there either. But now we have something strange. The second half, the next part of the Gemara. We have a, a Halakhic statement that may or may not derive from the story that follows. Amara Ash. So we're now uh, Rabbi Huda and Rav are in the first and second generation of Amorayim sometime in the third century and Rav Ashi is taking us to the late fourth century, the early fifth century. So Rav Ashi says, Ki havan bei when we were studying with Rav Kahana, Hava Amrinan, we said, Modi Rav bidirei dile. Rav agrees that distancing is necessary in the case of his arrows. In other words, in the case where direct damage is caused. And this raises a question. If Rabbi Amar Rab was simply saying that the Halakha is like Rabbi in the case of the tree and the pit, what is the need for avashi statement? If we don't assume that Rabi developed had a larger principle, and also, if we don't assume that later Amoraim applied this principle to cases other than the tree in the pit, why would the Gemara have to say Rabi is moda in the case of Giri Dile? So it leads us to think that perhaps later on. Rabbi Yossi was understood to be expressing a larger principle, as we saw as being one reading of the Mishnah, and that this larger principle was accepted, that in many cases I can say to my neighbor, if and when there is a problem we'll deal with it, but you can't make me limit the use of my property because of what might happen later on. But in a case where I'm clearly going to cause damage, there I have to distance myself. And what kind of case is Gireh Way? So now let's see the story that follows. Papi Yona, Papi, possibly from the case of, the place of Yonah, or he was a, uh, a dove tender. Ani veheshir haya, he was poor, he became wealthy. But apadna. he built a McMansion, he built a you know, large home. Havu hanakatsure veshivobute. There were, there were people who had a sesame press in his neighborhood. Now, sesame press, besides so possibly making a lot of noise, there's a lot of pounding going on. Because there's pounding going on, it was causing the walls of Papi Onan's house to shake. The When they were pounding the sesame to produce the oil, the walls were shaking. The walls of this palace or this large hall. So he came before Ravashi. right, the typical phrase that's used when you come for a ruling. So he said to him, So he said to him, in this case you can ask for relief because even though the halacha is like Rabbi Yossi, Rabbiosi will also agree in this case, where action BA leads to immediate damage or the potential for damage for Mr. B, even there Rabbiosi says that um, you have to cease and desist. Now again, this raises the question of what if we ask Rabati about the case of putting, of digging a flat spool next to my wall, next to the wall is my neighbor, where eventually that flax ball could cause damage. What would he say in that case? Would he regard that case as diri delay? Maybe, but it's not obvious that he would. So, at this point, it's not clear in what cases the amora'im assumed Rabbi Yossi disagreed with the Chachamim and it's not clear in which cases they ruled in accordance with Rabiosi. So let's look at one more sughia which will, to an even greater degree, suggest the extent to which Rabiosi, the understanding of Rabiosi has been expanded. This is number 14. bar Barmerion Borei de Rabin in the house of Barmerion the son of Rabbi he have a Nazi kitna they were beating flax to remove the the hard shell so the uh, what's it called again the chaff would be blown by the wind and it would cause injury to people you have chaff blowing in the air you can imagine that people can be injured, also perhaps it's not good for other people's field, the Gemara suggests. Atu de so they came before Ravina, and I'm assuming here it is not the Ravina who precedes Ravashi, but the one who follows them, because of what he says. Amar so he said to them, ki amrinan mode rabiosi dile, when we say that agrees. In the case of his arrows, when does Rabbi agree that you have to cease and desist? If you are directly causing your damage, the damage, in other words, your force, your immediate force, is causing the damage. So as I'm pounding the sesame seeds, for example, there's this ripple effect that's causing the walls of my neighbor to shake. But what's going on in this case? I'm pounding the flags, the the, uh, chaff falls to the ground, and now another force comes along and blows that chaff and causes injury to people outside of my property. There Ravina says, at the very least, Again, there's some confusion about this question throughout the chapter, but at the very least, Rabina is saying that these people who are beating the chap, who are beating the flaps do not have to distance their activities from the property line to the degree that no chaff is going to blow outside of their property. So this is a case where damage is going to result fairly soon after the flax is beaten. I beat the flax at 10 o'clock and there's chaff there and at 10.15 a wind comes along and blows the chaff and that chaff blows into someone's eye almost immediately after my action damage has been caused to somebody else. And nonetheless, Ravina is saying that According to Rabbi and apparently he's following the Rabbi Yossi otherwise he wouldn't bother saying this, I am not held responsible or at the very least I don't have to distance myself. Now this case seems to be a case far beyond the case of the tree. Right? And yet, we are assuming, number one, that Rabbi Yossi um, exempts me from responsibility, I mean, let me back up and make sure everybody understands. So we saw in the case of the tree that Rabiosi said that in the case of the tree, I don't worry about the fact that in five years, when the roots grow into somebody else's property, this might cause damage to my neighbor. But this case is not that case at all. This case is where damage is happening much more quickly. And nonetheless, we are assuming, number one, that Rabbi Yossi is exempting me at the very least from having to distance myself. Number two, that the halakha apparently is in accordance with Rabbi Yossi. So somehow, over the Amoraic period, Rabbi Yossi has come to be understood not just as making rulings in these two particular cases, but as expressing a larger principle. And again, this larger principle is a sort of what I call libertarian principle. And the principle is that unless I cause direct damage to you at the moment that I am engaged in the activities of my property, I am permitted to engage in those uh, acts in my property, and if and when damage occurs to you, we will discuss it. But I'm not required to distance myself to prevent that possibility finally if we look at the anonymous column I'm going to skip over something that is part of the discussion but we're not going to look at it yet if you look at number eighteen this is the beginning of a subya this is at the end of a subya at the very beginning of the chapter Ostensibly this chapter is trying to see if the Mishnah can be, the, the Mishnayot throughout the chapter can be used to prove or disprove one position or the other between Abai and Rava in a particular case. But I would say that the real purpose of this sugya is to give us a survey of all of the Mishnayot in the chapter and to explain the principles behind all of the rulings in these Mishnah. So finally, we reach the end of this discussion. And the Talmud says as follows. Rabbi Yossi's basic view is that it is up to the one who is going to be damaged, potentially to be damaged, has to distance himself from the person who might potentially <coughs> cause him damage. You do not require the person who might cause someone else damage to distance his activities from the property. And now, the, the anonymous Talmud goes on to say something quite striking. The anonymous Talmud goes on to say that in the case where Raviosi disagrees, about the mustard and the bees. In fact, Rabbiosi not only disagrees in the case of the mustard and the bees, Rabiosi also disagrees in the case of the leeks and the onions, and the case of the what is it again, the flax pool and the vegetables. Why? Because at this point the anonymous comment is understanding Raviosi to say, as we said, that unless I cause damage to you immediately and directly. I do not need to distance what I am doing from the property line. And therefore it follows logically that in those two cases where by planting leeks now I am not immediately causing damage to my neighbor, when I am creating this black I am not immediately causing damage to my neighbor, I am not prevented from doing so. And therefore, the body goes on to say, according to me the one who might be damaged always has to distance himself if he's concerned that he might be damaged by his neighbor and even in the case of the flat pool and the vegetables the potential mazik doesn't have to distance himself but the problem is that Raviosi gives a particular explanation as to why he disagrees in the case of the bees and the and the mustard. So if he degre- disagrees in all of these cases, why does he give an explanation in that particular case? So the Talmud goes on to say, I'm just giving an explanation in the case of the bees and the and the mustard, because in this case, even you should agree with me. Even if you don't accept my principle in general, in the case of the bees and the mustard, you should agree. So what's happened? What's happened is we have Rabiosi disagreeing in two particular cases. We can very cogently explain why in those two cases, as opposed to the other cases that are discussed in this chapter, Rabiosi might disagree even while agreeing with the general principle that is formulated in the chapter that in general I must distance my activities from my property line if they might cause damage to my neighbor. But what happens over time is that Rabiosi's principle is understood to be a broader principle and Rabiosi's principle is accepted as being halakha in those cases because very early on the Halakha was understood to be like Rabiosi in the case of the tree and the vine. And why did this happen? Short answer, from my point of view, is I don't know. That having been said, I think it's intriguing that in the Mishnah itself, as we pointed out, you have a phrase a potentially, not potentially, an ambiguous phrase "ze kofer bitok shalom the notea bitok shalom which can be understood in the very narrow sense of Rabiosi simply explaining that this is what is permitted in this particular place but it can also be understood as establishing a larger principle and if this is how Rabiosi was understood, and if the halakha in that case was stated to be in accordance with Rabiosi, we can imagine how, not why, I can't explain why, but how Rabiosi was understood to be saying something broader, and why the halakha being assumed to be in accordance with Rabiosi um, was assumed to be like Rabbi Yossi all these other cases, even where there was a, a more direct or more definite source of that. So that having been said, I want to say two more things. Two more things. One is that very often in halacha, there is a difference between, there is a tension between the letter of the law and what poskim think is equitable and right and fair. And in this case, when we look at the post poskim later on, even those post-scheme who believe that the letter of the law is like Rabiosi as understood in the broader sense, that if I do not cause you damage directly, but if I cause it indirectly, So, as in the case of the flax, I'm not responsible to damage myself. In fact, they don't follow that view. There is a tshuva by one of the gaonim, the Bati where he's asked about the case where one person has a cistern in his property and sometimes when there's a lot of rain, it overflows, and the water goes into his neighbor's property. And apparently one of the neighbor who owned the cistern was a learned individual. And he said to him, This is Brahma. This is indirect. I'm not doing anything to cause damage to my neighbor. It's the rain. So Rabbi Tityahu says, Sorry. halacha." is supposed to establish what's right and what's fair. And in this case, you have other options. And therefore, even though you were arguing that according to the letter of the law, you need not do anything in your property, I am going to say that you do. Because the basic principle for me is that we try to find a way of people living with each other in harmony. The last thing that I want to say is that, just to circle back to what I started with, that part of this, what is fascinating in the study of Mishnah for me, is precisely the kind of situation that I exemplified, that I think this Mishnah exemplifies, which is the ways in which Mishnah is not clear, and the ways in which. Amoraim, Yaonim, yea, unto this very day, we sometimes are confronted by a phrase in the Mishnah, which ought to be clear, but is not. And the doors are open to various ways of understanding that phrase, and some radically different results are possible, depending on how we choose to understand. I wish everyone a good day and I hope that we all go away with vivid and good memories of it.